Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by Harriet Ryan, who's a journalist for the LA Times, and Harriet frequently writes about the opioid epidemic. So Harriet, welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay. So yesterday, you wrote an interesting article about the city of Everett. That's a city of about 100,000 people north of Seattle, and they just sued Purdue uh, Pharma for putting profits over the welfare of citizens. So let's start with that article. And talk a little bit about that. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, This is a lawsuit they initiated uh, on the basis of reporting that we did. We published a story last year that showed how um, black market OxyContin was being trafficked from Southern California to this small city of Everett. And that some of the suppliers were getting pills from a drug ring in Los Angeles, and this drug ring was known to the manufacturer of OxyContin, Purdue Pharma. They were monitoring it. They were aware that uh, people were getting their hands on enormous quantities of OxyContin, and there was um, some calls among their employees to do something about it, to contact the DEA, but they did not do that. And they waited until years later to tell anyone in law enforcement about it. So we put out that story last summer. And after the story ran, this town started looking into possible litigation against the drug company. They filed the suit yesterday. Um, They are trying to recoup the costs of dealing with the opioid crisis in their city. What they have now is a heroin epidemic, and it is impacting many different parts of life in that city. Um, They have a huge homeless problem. Their jail is overrun. They do not have enough detox beds, um, petty crime, you name it. So um, they're looking for help from Purdue to pay for some of the costs of the problem. So how much are they looking for? The lawsuit doesn't specify an amount. Uh, What they say is that It will be determined at trial and that they're also looking for punitive damages. So not just the amount that they um, spent, but also um, another amount of punishment to the company. My conversations with the mayor of the town, he says that, of the city, 
is that it's um, this is costing them tens of millions of dollars to deal with, and and they are seeking to be paid back. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Wow, you know the the strange thing about this is the fact that a Purdue employee started tracking that all the way back to I, I guess 2008. And and she kept urging company officials to report it to the DEA, but they did nothing until after 1.1 million pills were distributed to the black market. So our our reporting showed that you know the company was keeping track of the physicians. This ring used dirty physicians, corrupt physicians, and corrupt pharmacies. And our reporting showed that Purdue had a system in place where they could see if a physician was prescribing outlandish amounts of pills, and then they would go send people out to investigate physicians who had questions about the prescribing habits. And we know in this case, um, there was a, a doctor, Eleanor Santiago, at this clinic in downtown LA, who was just, I mean, she was writing massive quantities of Oxycontin and, and in the 80 milligram strength, which was the maximum strength, and that was the strength that was favored by addicts. And and that, you know, they could see that and they went out and they tried to, you know, find out what was going on at the clinic. And what they saw was just sort of a rundown building that looked abandoned and just had a bunch of young, rough looking guys. The the Purdue employees said they looked like they'd just gotten out of the county jail or maybe were gang members. They're just standing around in there in a big, long line. And, um, you know, she wasn't a dummy. She knew what was going on. And she reported back to headquarters that, you know, this is a problem. This is not legitimate. Um, and for whatever reason, they waited and waited and waited until the ring was out of business before they went to authorities. Wow. And no idea why they waited that long, right? You know, what, what we never got to talk to, um, you know, the ultimate decision maker, but uh, she declined to talk to us. But, you know, what we heard from a, uh, a high-ranking guy at the company who was an executive who interviewed with us, he said, you know, they had these committees that would sort of decide things and talk about things, and it just wasn't, in my opinion, treated like the emergency that it was. Hmm. Um, so they, you know, I think there was a concern that if they went to authorities, it would draw attention to the fact that OxyContin was being criminally trafficked and was being abused, and it would make the company look bad at a time when they were trying to sort of repair their image. Uh, and they had contact with the Drug Enforcement Administration during this time. They were talking to those guys frequently, but for whatever reason, they weren't sharing this information. Wow. And, you know, the suspect doctors, it wasn't just isolated to a few. In fact, they had a database that they kept that I guess they called it a Region Zero program, and it had over uh, 1,800 suspect doctors in it. So that's a huge that's problem. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they, um, they would tell their sales reps and they would you know, the job of a sales a sales rep for a drug company is you, you go out every day and you spend your day visiting doctors and you decide who to visit by looking at, you know, the data for your for your territory. It's like a comment. Anyone who works in sales knows how to do this. So you say, okay, well, you know, this physician is writing a lot of prescriptions for, let's say, Vicodin, but they're not writing a lot of prescriptions for OxyContin. Maybe I should go out and talk to them and try to get them to um, write more OxyContin. But the sales reps were also looking at that data 
and seeing that some physicians were only writing or most of what they were writing was just this one strength of Oxycontin that was used by addicts. And they were writing way more prescriptions than like say an entire hospital would use. So uh, based on the numbers and based on what the sales reps would see in the office, you know, suspicious behavior such as a lot of um, young, able-bodied people in the waiting room, people, um, you know, selling drugs in the parking lot, out-of-state license plates. Based on suspicious, you know, red flags they would see and the numbers, they would report different physicians back to headquarters. And then a bunch of lawyers, a team of committee, would do an investigation um, back at their headquarters in Connecticut. And if they deemed that, yes, indeed, this doctor is, you know, suspicious that the prescribing doesn't make sense, that it seems like they are colluding with a drug dealer or with addicts, they would put that data, that doctor in this database called Region Zero. That sounds good, right? You know, you identify somebody who's who's possibly trafficking drugs. Sure. But outside of the company, that database really didn't mean anything. So it didn't automatically report them to law enforcement. It didn't find out where the pills were going and try to stop them. The doctors didn't even know they were placed in Region Zero. All it meant was that sales reps would no longer visit that doctor and they wouldn't earn commissions on the pills that that doctor was writing. And so in a way, it saved the company money because they didn't have to pay commissions to their sales reps anymore. And it really just removed the Purdue employees from the presence of somebody who was suspected of colluding with the drug dealers and addicts. It didn't keep that physician from continuing to do, uh, you know, this really disturbing prescribing. So we know that between, you know, the last time they provided us the numbers, I think it was 2013, there were 1,800 doctors in that database and um, less than 10% had been reported to authorities. Wow. Huh. So you bring about an interesting point there, though. Kind of subtle, but very, very interesting. Not only do they get the win of this 1,800 doctor, doctors that are just prescribing their stuff, their product like crazy, but then they set them aside and don't pay commission on this stuff. Right. So they were aware that, you know, sales reps are motivated by commissions at a big chunk of their salary, particularly yeah. at Purdue Pharma, yeah. was from bonuses, sales bonuses. So they realized in kind of the, the bad old days of hillbilly heroin and the early use of OxyContin, say the late 90s and early 2000s, the company realized that some of their top reps, the people that were making the most money and had the most sales, really just had like, you know, one or two corrupt doctors who were writing outlandish amounts of prescriptions because they were, you know, they were working with drug dealers or they were selling to addicts, selling prescriptions to addicts. And so they, they realized that was a problem for them. And, and they didn't want to incentivize their employees to, you know, partner with dirty doctors. They didn't want them doing that. So they felt like by removing by removing the financial incentive, um, they ho hoped that uh, their sales reps would look at these doctors and report them uh, back to headquarters and and see them as you know um, people that were doing the wrong thing rather as meal tickets. So I mean there was a there was there was a good idea in there, but. Um, but in effect, what it did was it, it allowed the company to keep money that they would have otherwise had to pay to sales reps. Sure. Wow. Huh. Okay. So now let's move along to an article that you wrote last month. 
with the headline, Oxycontin Goes Global. We're only just getting started, is what the company was quoted as saying. Sales have dropped by 40% in the U.S. since 2010 uh, for the Oxycontin drug. And a drug maker, Purdue Pharma, uh, has gone global through their uh, their company, their uh, international distributor, I guess, called uh, Mundi Pharma. So let's talk just a little bit about that. Their plan is to go global and use many of the same tactics that they started back in uh, 1996 here, right? So this this has been occurring um, kind of under the radar for, for the past five years. Starting in 2011, which was the first year that sales of OxyContin dropped in the U.S., um, the, the owners of the company, it's a family, the Sackler family, they own a, an international network of companies. And that international network started stepping up their expansion, especially into what they call emerging markets, which we would call the developing world. And they started opening offices, Brazil, Argentina, um, Mexico, uh, really expanding in China, opening up in various countries across Asia, South Africa. And, you know, they've been pretty blunt about it, not when talking to us, but, you know, in, in talk, you know, in putting out press releases and, and speaking to people in the pharmaceutical industry, they're like, look, you know, the profit, profits are falling in, um, in the U.S. Um, they're stagnant in, in Canada and Europe, and we got to expand to other places. And so we're looking at these countries that have rising uh, middle classes that are expected to become big economic powerhouses like Russia and Brazil and China. So um, we found in our review of you know, just what's public, what's out there, what they're saying publicly, that they are using some of the tactics that they used in the U.S. Um, that are very controversial. And, you know, one of those is downplaying the risk of addiction to patients from painkillers. So we found evidence of people who work for the company or are employed by the company, you know, telling the public, telling patients, telling, saying, look, if you, if you have legitimate pain, you don't have to worry about becoming addicted to your meds. We know in the U.S. that that is not true. So the CDC uh, has said that up to 24% of people that are prescribed painkillers long-term become addicted to their medications. And that it's it's not just... The, the suggestion is that on, the only people who become addicted are people who maybe buy painkillers on the streets or something like that. And, um, you know, our experience in the U.S. has shown that actually patients... <laughs> People that who have legitimate pain and go to their doctors also become addicted to their medications. Yep. So in going forward and fighting the battle internationally, they even coined a phrase for overcoming the doctor's uh, little bit of concern about writing opioids. They called that opiophobia, is it? Right. And you know, this is a term that is kind of used by different people in the pharmaceutical industry, but they call it opiophobia, and they say it's, it's um, you know, it's incorrect to be um, to have a, a fear of your patients becoming addicted to narcotics. Um, that that's sort of like old thinking, and these doctors in these developing countries should step into the 21st century and realize that opioids are a, can be the modern, you know, state of the art way to treat chronic pain. I think many people, including at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, would say that that is not 21st century thinking on the use of opioids for chronic pain. 
Hmm. So um, the consultants that are paid by Mundi Pharma, they downplay the risk of describing opioids in their seminars. One consultant even claimed any side effect is reversible when treatment is discontinued and there's no permanent damage to the body. Well, how can they even claim that with all of the studies that exist today? Yeah, I think that if that um, expert that Purdue hired would have been talking to a room full of American physicians, they would have had a lot of questions about that statement. But uh, he was addressing a room full of Mexican physicians who I would um, assume had a lot less experience um, of dealing with the long-term use of opioids. Hmm. So some of their other claims are just, I mean, it, it blows me away. Like uh, another one, studies have shown it's almost impossible for those with chronic to severe pain to become addicted to narcotics as long as the drug is used for pain relief. And here's another one. You won't get addicted if you follow the doctor's orders. Wow. That, that just, I mean, internationally, that just, that blows me away that they can still make those claims. Yeah, I don't think that, um, I, I, I mean, people in Purdue representatives in the U.S., people selling OxyContin in the U.S. today don't say those kind of things. Um, so it's really surprising that they would do that in other countries. I think the issue with painkillers is if you're going to make a profit from them, if you're going to make a lot of money off of selling painkillers, you can't just sell them to people who are in hospice or um have cancer, HIV. That market is too small to make the kind of enormous profits we've seen in the U.S. What you need to do to make the billions that, we, that we've had here is that you have to have an, a market of chronic pain patients. Those people don't die. They're going to be your customers month after month after month, year after year after year. Uh, so those are the customers that um, are most profitable to the pharmaceutical companies. And yet, we have the leading authorities in the U.S. saying, don't use opioids on those people, or discouraging physicians from using opioids on chronic pain patients because of the risks of addiction and death. And it's sort of a, it's a problem. It's a problem for pharmaceutical companies as they try to go into these big markets. Um, and, and I don't know. It's surprising. It is surprising to just blatantly state these things that experts in the U.S. would tell you are not true. It is. And I mean, one thing that your article goes on to point out is, it's cheap to treat them with morphine, just morphine. Yes. So why yeah, don't they I mean, do that? Why don't they do that? What's, what's, what am I missing here? So untreated pain is like a huge, huge problem in the world. And if you go on YouTube and you look at um, their really disturbing videos of what it's like to die of cancer in a really poor country, say in Africa or Haiti or India, it's terrible. And no one should have to spend the last days, weeks, months of their life in that kind of pain. But pharmaceutical companies cannot, don't target destitute people. You know, they go to countries that have money for healthcare. Mm. And, uh, morphine could solve those horrible situations I was talking about. But someone has to produce it and distribute it. And since you can't really make a lot of money on it because it's so cheap, it's hard to line up a company to do that. The uh, U UN group have actually called on drug companies 
to figure out a way to provide that morphine cheaply in, say, Africa, the way those same companies have been, in a sense, shamed into providing HIV drugs in Africa. Um, I think you remember the the Clinton uh, during the Clinton administration and his work afterwards. They and uh, President Bush, they they convinced a bunch of um, pharmaceutical companies to provide um, these expensive HIV drugs in um, Africa at, at an affordable cost for people there, and it's made a huge difference. UN groups have said to the pharmaceutical industry, "Why don't you do the same thing with morphine? It's desperately needed there. Um, nobody's going in because these countries are so poor. You guys should do it." And so far, they haven't had any takers. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if some like billionaire wanted to just like buy pallets and pallets of morphine, they could easily relieve a lot of pain in the in the developing world. Hmm. Well, that would seem to be a worthy cause for someone like the Gates Foundation to uh, to pick up and run with. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting issue because these people are at the end of their life. I mean, we we're talking about elderly people dying of cancer. Hmm. Um, it's, it's different, <laughs> like. Just to reduce it to the simplest and kind of disturbing analysis, those people are, are not going to contribute anymore to their community. The way, like, you know, um, if you eradicate malaria, that's going to allow a lot of children to live and, and to grow up and to be contributing members of their society and build those countries up into stronger countries. People who are in their last weeks or months of life, they have very little to contribute to their society. Helping them is just helping them because it's the right thing to do. There's no cost-benefit analysis to it. You just have to do it because it's the right thing to do. And it's been hard to find um, organizations with lots and lots of resources who want to do that. Hmm. Um, so a different aspect of uh, the, uh, you know, the international push, if you will, of uh, opioids. So in the, uh, the, as a result of the Chinese opium wars in the 19th century, uh, there were millions of people that were left addicted. And as a result, that um, left a kind of a profound, uh, I guess, uh, residue on their government in terms of how they uh, legislated and how they monitored those going forward. So to this day, uh, they've got strict regulations allowing no more than things such as a 15-day supply of opioids to be prescribed. It seems as though there would be some lessons learned there for our government, wouldn't there? Well, I mean, I think it's an interesting kind of comparison. Um, we've had, obviously, terrible problems here, and we now see a push by, you know, our leading health authorities to to, uh, to prescribe fewer pills initially. So um, what we have the Surgeon General and other people telling primary care doctors is that, you know, when someone comes to you, like, with an injury or just out of surgery, do not send them home with, like, a full bottle of pills. Send them home with, like, a four-day supply, maybe seven days. But don't send them home with, you know, a 30-day supply when when the, that they're either going to take a lot more medication than they need or it's going to sit in their medicine cabinet until some teenager comes along and shares it with his friends. Um, so we've gotten to that point where I think, you know, the people who think who are thinking uh, about how to stop the problem we have are, are focusing on, you know, the amount of pills that are prescribed up front. China got there with its own crisis, you know, with the opium wars. But it remains to be seen if they're going to stick with that. You know, we know that, for example, the company that we wrote about, the um, Purdue-affiliated company, Mundo Pharma, they are really expanding their presence in China, and they are trying to um, get 
Chinese physicians to embrace their view of painkillers. So we don't know whether, you know, that the rules that they have governing OxyContin now are going to be the rules going forward. Okay. So uh, let's come back to the U.S. And um, you've reported on and seen much related to the opioid epidemic here in our country. Um, have you seen some programs that work that you can cite? Well, I think everyone's interested in what's going to happen with the medically assisted treatment, and that's Suboxone and, and um, other drugs like that, buprenorphine products. Vivitrol. Uh, yes. I think that I've talked to many people that have um, who are in recovery or trying to get into recovery from opioid addiction. And what I my my belief from talking to many many people is that it is it's incredibly hard that it's not at all unusual to meet people that have relapsed five seven times who've been in and out of rehab for years and years and years. And they're not particularly weak people or bad people. It's just in any way it's a it's a strong, that the hold that it has in your brain is so, so strong. Um, and medically assisted treatment is, is a way to not have to go to relapse again and again. It's to, uh, you know, to replace, um, that, the hold that, um, opioids have on you with something that is more, um, it allows you to function in your life. And doesn't doesn't have the same downsides. I mean, obviously, it is an opioid, and you know, people are talking about the prospect of uh, patients being on this for the rest of their life, and that's. I mean, we don't know what the long term impact of that is going to be, but um, I know people that have been on it for a decade and who feel that it has saved their life. So I, I think that's really interesting. I also think the naloxone programs of just getting law enforcement teachers people in the community, addicts themselves to just have naloxone with them all the time to reverse overdoses is um, something that uh, just has so much potential. I mean, clearly, like, um, when someone overdoses and you revive them, that doesn't cure their addiction. That doesn't get them into treatment. That doesn't detox them. But it allows them to live another day, another week, another month, another year, so that they can get to the point where they take the steps they need to um, get into recovery. And if they die, there's no chance of recovering. So I, I'm just, I, I like the potential of just naloxone being everywhere um, and people um, just getting more time to get their life together. How about some of these other discussions that are just bubbling up now about other harm reduction strategies, such as SIFs? That supervi supervised injection facilities. There's a lot of discussion about that and a push for that in New York as well as Seattle. Any thoughts on that? I know that they're, they're common abroad um, and that those many um, people in addiction who are in Australia and Europe feel that they're successful. It is, it's always been a hard sell in the U.S. as I understand it, but I think we're getting to the point with the opioid epidemic where um, elected officials, uh, who would be the ones who are, would block this sort of thing are, are, um, are really looking for solutions. I mean, I think they're hearing from so many people, parents and doctors about this problem that they are willing to try things that they wouldn't have been comfortable with, um, you know, even a year ago. 
Yeah, that's certainly what I'm hearing. No, no doubt. So, Harriet, um, thank you so much. Um, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners about the opioid epidemic and some of these uh, topics that you've covered? Just that I'm amazed by um, people who, you know, persevere. Um, it's such difficult work, um, especially when it's, you know, someone you love and to just continue to get up every morning and put one foot in front of the other and, and try to um, make something good out of a bad situation. I'm, I just, I'm in awe of those people and they have inspired me a lot. Well, thank you, Harriet. Really Thank appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really appreciate your spending time with us today. Sure. We've been visiting today with Harriet Ryan. She's a journalist for the LA Times who frequently writes about the opioid epidemic. This is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover Two Resources, and thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.